This is exactly what diet culture and everyone who gives advice on Instagram doesn't want you to know because it's not straightforward. There's no clear solution. Hello and welcome to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about why your kids should be eating more waffles and frozen burritos for dinner. We also talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and a bunch of other stuff. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I'm the author of The Eating Instinct and the forthcoming Fat Kid Phobia, and I also write the newsletter Burnt Toast. Today's conversation is with Burnt Toast fan favorite, friend of the show, frequent flyer guest, Amy Palangian. Amy is the creator of the kid food blog, Yummy Toddler Food. She's also a mom of three and my lifelong work wife. Amy and I used to make the Comfort Food podcast together. And you can still find those, I think we had 87 magic episodes on your podcast player. But these days she's busy running her kid food empire, so I just recruit her to come on Burnt Toast every so often when we need her expertise. Our last conversation was about Halloween candy, and if you are stressing about holiday food right now, we're in the thick of the winter holiday season as we are recording this, A lot of candy, lots of cookies, lots of delicious food around. This one might be a good one to go back and listen to because all the strategies we talk about for Halloween candy definitely apply to holiday food. But today, Amy and I are talking about the concept of the backup meal, as in when your kids hate what's for dinner, should you let them swap it out for a backup option? And there is a whole philosophical debate about this that Amy and I get into. I think there are pros and cons. I also think a lot of our anxiety about the backup meal is fueled by diet culture. But at the end of the day, the should you or shouldn't you question is really moot because the reality, as many of you have told me, is you are doing it. Backup meals are happening. This is real life. So We are talking through how we use them and how to make them work for your family. And when I say work for your family, I mean both to work towards family dinners that are fun and relaxed and kids feel comfortable and confident eating at them, but also to make less work and chaos in your own life as the parent and probably person preparing most of the food. I should also say Amy is the person I bring on the podcast pretty much whenever I feel like we need to dissect a weird kid food trend or solve a family dinner conundrum. So if you have a question or a topic you want us to tackle in a future episode, you can post it as a comment on this episode of the newsletter, or you can send that to virginiasoulsmith at substack.com. Here's Amy, but first a quick break. Hey, if this was a normal podcast, I'd be stopping right now to tell you how much I love a certain diet app and why you should also love that diet app. But it's not a normal podcast, so we're not doing that. And instead, I'm going to tell you two quick ways you can support the show. First, subscribe to Burnt Toast in your podcast player. And for bonus points, leave us a rating or a review. This is free and it really helps other folks find the show in podcast land. Next, as you're doing your holiday shopping this year, remember to give the gift of good email. For just $5 per month or $50 per year, you can give someone full access to the Burnt Toast universe. That includes subscriber-only bonus episodes of the podcast where I answer their questions about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. And they'll also get all of the reported essays and my monthly Ask Virginia column delivered directly to their email. Your recipient will also become a part of the Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday discussion threads. 
You can give just a $5 one month subscription, which makes a great stocking stuffer, or do $50 for the full year. And I have a cute gift certificate you can download and print out for them to make it extra festive. Click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to subscribe. And thank you for supporting independent anti-diet journalism. Hi, Amy. Hello. Thank you for doing this and actually doing this for a second time as we had some technical difficulties, but we're back and this is going to be even better than our first conversation. <laughs> Just like when we had our own podcast and it was like every other week we had to do it twice. <laughs> it is a landscape we know well, it's true. Um, but we're learning and growing, so that's good. Okay, so we are not here to talk about podcasting difficulties. Today we are talking about backup meals. And so... To give some context for folks who might have missed the first part of this conversation, this came up when I wrote a newsletter essay on Burnt Toast about how my grandmothers cooked and approached feeding families, and in particular, how my British grandmother did not cook weeknight dinners. She did not do it in England at the time and still now. They have tea as an evening meal. And in my grandmother's house, tea meant literally a cup of tea and two pieces of toast and maybe some sponge cake. And that is all you serve. And it is possibly genius. I do love that this newsletter is called Burnt Toast. I didn't know this story about her when I named it that, but it feels very appropriate. And a lot of readers after that essay said, oh, you know, we don't do exactly that, but we do kind of the same thing where if our kids don't like what we're eating for dinner, we let them pick a backup meal like peanut butter and jelly or a bowl of cereal or something like that if they don't like the main meal. And then you, Amy, messaged me and said, oh, yeah, our backup meal is a frozen burrito. And my head kind of exploded because you and I have been talking about how we feed our kids for the last eight and a half years, and I had no idea you did this. So tell us how this concept originated in your house. So I think we actually did it with our first kid. She could have toast if she didn't like the main meal. Mm -hmm. And then we had more children, and I stopped doing it regularly because it seemed like too much Mm -hmm. to have another option. And instead, I leaned in hard, making sure that there were easy sides on the table. But I've got a kid who's nine and a half and she likes what she likes and sometimes she's willing to try new things and sometimes she's not and I have discovered that I don't actually need to make her eat food she doesn't want to eat and so <laughs> we can have easy options that I don't actually have to get up and cook the problem with our current backup meal is that it requires me to buy a lot of frozen burritos which I should maybe just embrace, (laughs) but there's a particular one from Amy's Kitchen that all three of my kids really like. It's just bean and cheese. I should just buy it by the case. (laughs) Maybe you can order it online somehow. Right. So maybe twice a month, if she really dislikes the meal, she will get up and make herself a frozen burrito. Right now, I'm testing recipes for a cookbook, and so my kids are seeing recipes that they've never seen before, or they're seeing things in slightly different ways because we tend to eat sort of the same thing. And I can't make a cookbook with five recipes. (laughs) (laughs) No, you need like 75 recipes. And that is a lot of new food to throw at your kids all the time. Yeah. That's like their cobbler's kids have no shoes, or in your case, many, many pairs of shoes that they don't want to wear. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. So a really interesting thing to me about the whole backup meal conversation is that When people started telling me they were doing it, it was like 
a little apologetic or ashamed, like, yeah, we know we're not supposed to, but yeah, this happens at our house. And I just thought, oh, wait, what? Where have we gone wrong here? Because to me, this does not sound like a failure. You have a nine-year-old who's capable of making her own burrito for dinner. This feels like a triumph. So let's unpack this a little bit. Where do you think this sense of backup meal as mom failure, parenting failure comes from? Yeah, I think a lot of it is this pressure on family meals and that we're all eating the same thing. The point of family meals is to expose kids to a range of foods so that they eat them over time, Mm -hmm. which, as you and I know, is not really the way that humans work. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so this feels like a departure from that line that we have been taught. So I think it's both the pressure on family meals to look a certain way And also the way that we talk about the division of responsibility, the way that we talk about how we feed our kids doesn't really allow for the option of the kids just choosing something else. Right. No, absolutely. So just to like define terms for folks who don't know, division of responsibility is a feeding philosophy developed by Ellen Satter. Amy and I both are fans with a few caveats. I'll link to some stuff in the show notes. You can read more about it. But it basically, it says, instead of micromanaging your kids' plates and counting bites and forcing them to eat certain things, you just put all the food on the table and then kids choose of the food you're offering which foods they're going to eat and how much they're going to eat. So it can reduce a lot of pressure, but what happens if the kid refuses every piece of food you put on the table? And so the backup meal is definitely not strict division of responsibility because it's kind of what they're trying to get you away from. But there's also this reality that kids are not going to sit down at the table every night and say, oh, how delicious these many options are. And sometimes you need a backup plan, literally. Yeah, I think there's also something about if we let our kids eat the food that they want, we're somehow not doing our job. It feels like we're not succeeding in our parenting goals of raising kids who want to eat a bunch of different foods. And often the foods they want to eat are not foods that we have been told we can feel good about them wanting to eat. Especially not for dinner. Right. This is where the diet culture piece of it comes in. If you have made, I don't know, a delicious kale salad with a runny egg on top and some goat cheese and your kid (laughs) is turning all of that down and would rather have Eggo waffles. Not like that's a story that's happened in my own house or anything. (laughs) Um, It's like you're not supposed to live on Eggo waffles. And yet kids are not programmed to want confusing textures like kale and runny eggs all the time. I mean, honestly, I don't ever even want to eat kale. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I did grow a bunch in the garden last year and it was very decorative. And then the cabbage flies got it and that was fine. (laughs) We didn't eat it at all. So I think that's another piece of this is whatever the backup option is, it's not going to meet that checklist of, quote, healthy eating or Instagram-worthy family dinner that we have in our head. And we have to let that go. I think we serve more vegetables probably at dinner than most other meals because Mm. it's the meal that we cook a little bit more. So I think if we know that our kids are just going to eat some crackers that we've doubly failed. Right. You've missed this opportunity to get vegetables in them. We've equated dinner with vegetable consumption in a way that's probably extremely counterproductive, both to teaching kids to like vegetables and 
to like enjoying dinner. Right. And also kids are the most tired at that time of the day. So giving them the more challenging foods in that context is just silly. Yeah, it's going to backfire. Yeah. So if you're approaching this from that division of responsibility mindset, there's this equating of backup meals with short order cooking. And I think we need to sort out the gray area between these things because to me, A backup meal is not helpful if I sit down at the table and my kid immediately demands something different and I have to get up and go prepare another meal. That's short order cooking and that does legitimately both make me incredibly cranky and create a not great power dynamic between me and my kids and food. But a backup meal is not that. So how do you differentiate between these things? What's your line? So I'm not getting up. (laughs) That is the line. Amy's not getting up. I'm not getting up. So the kids need to be able to get it on their own. So Mm -hmm. we have done the frozen burrito, which my two girls can make on their own. And we have done cereal, which they can bring to the table. And then the five-year-old needs help because she can't pour. And we've done toast. And so those are the options that we've done. And they can do it on their own. It is not going to be the most elaborate meal that they've ever had. In my mind, this is a fairly rare occurrence, and it is a way to make sure that the meal is still pleasurable for everyone and that we can have a good experience regardless of what the food is. So I want the food to be super straightforward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But I'll also say, as someone for whom the backup meal is becoming a (laughs) less rare occurrence, more like a twice a week occurrence. (laughs) Don't feel bad if that is your situation as well, because I think for kids with more complicated histories around food, this might be where you are. If settling on a backup meal that they feel good eating and you feel doesn't create a lot of extra work for you, if that enables you to come to the table and share the meal and enjoy having a fun conversation with your kid, that's going to do so much more for their confidence and comfort level around food, period, than if you're dying on this mountain of, but I put rolls on the table and that's your safe food and why won't you eat the rolls? And they're like, because these rolls have seeds on them and I hate rolls with seeds. And <laughs> now you're in a whole hellscape and it's you like just want to eat my your house. My kids can spot a seed from like seven miles oh. away. And yet my children love everything bagels, which I believe are covered <laughs> in many kinds of seeds. Anyway, that's a whole sidebar we could get into. It's like <laughs> what seeds are acceptable. <laughs> and which you're not. Speaking of bagels, I wanted to list some of the options people said they use as backup foods because I think these all fall into that criteria you're sketching out of very minimal prep. Kids can access them themselves and you can quickly move on with the rest of the meal. So yogurt, cereal, simple sandwiches, PB&J type things, bagel and cream cheese, sliced turkey, peanuts, cheese and crackers, popcorn, leftovers. If they did like dinner the night before, I feel like it is not at all a failure to heat up some of last night's dinner. And I also appreciate the mom who said whatever they can safely get out of the fridge by themselves because that seems like a fair bar. And if that means they're eating pickles or something for dinner, maybe that's their journey tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Any other options that you would recommend or that I haven't listed there? Frozen foods. Like burritos, you mentioned the waffles. Um, you know, there could Your be like a whole huge host of house. frozen food options that would be possible. We don't do mac and cheese as this option, but you could get those individual microwavable servings. Oh, yeah, those little cups you can microwave. Yeah. That's a good thought. With the box of mac and cheese, you're getting up and someone right. has to boil no water. 
and that's slowing down dinner. So that's another piece we need to talk about is the timing of this because you do it like she can get up and go get the burrito for herself. I have been experimenting with rather than having it happen in that moment of everyone sitting down at the table, I have been talking to my kid ahead of time and saying, here's what I'm making for dinner. Do you want that? Or would you like a bagel or a waffle? And the reason I like that is because then we don't have the super stressful panic attack moment at the table where she feels overwhelmed by stuff she doesn't want to eat. It gives her more confidence going into the meal that she knows there's going to be something there she likes. But I don't know if that would work for everybody. So what are your thoughts about that? I would much rather bring everything to the table, including whatever easy sides I've decided to include and see how that goes first. Because (laughs) if I offered a frozen burrito every night, they would probably always take it. My kids don't eat everything that I make, but usually the reactions that my kids have about food are worse when they don't see it. Like yes. if I'm just talking about it, they can't always visualize what the th- that thing is going to be. There's not enough specifics for them. Like if I was saying I'm making pasta, they'd be like, what shape, what color, is there cheese? I don't have the bandwidth to have the pre-negotiation. And so I would rather <laughs> just wait, even though it could create a hiccup. Yeah, I think you have to just know your kid's temperament. We were stuck in a really bad pattern of kids sitting down to the table and screaming. That was super triggering for me because I literally just finished putting effort into this meal. I want to sit down and enjoy my food. And now instead, I'm having to sort out whether you're going to eat it or do you need something else. That whole struggle at the table was making me furious. And sorting it out ahead of time, even if it means she's defaulting to the backup meal more often than maybe I would consider ideal. It's reducing our dinnertime conflict so much. It feels worth it. But I completely agree. I think the fact that I'm saying, do you want ramen noodles and kimchi or do you want a bagel? It's not shocking that she's like, bagel, please. (laughs) She may be saying that more because of that. This other workaround, if your kid sounds more like my kid, is to think about how you can still make the meal feel inclusive for them. I still serve the rest of the dishes family style. And every now and then, if she sees something she does want a bite of, or there's a new food, I'll say, do you want some of this on your plate? So I'm not ruling out the idea that she would eat the rest of the meal. I'm just like, okay, you want a bagel on your plate, and then there's this other stuff you could choose from. There's so much nuance to this. This is why we have to get away from these hard and fast rules about how family dinner has to go, because this is what's working in my house, but it needs to play out differently in your house. This is not us telling you how to do this. This This is a very gray area. I think we need to give ourselves plenty of room for this to change and work sometimes and adjust to whatever phase that you're going through or if your life circumstances change. This is exactly what diet culture and everyone who gives advice on Instagram like doesn't want you to know because it's not straightforward. There's no clear solution. The key here is being responsive to your family in the context I think as my kiddo is getting older, I'm trying to see where I can give her more independence about food and let her be more in charge. And that's not every night at dinner, but we actually want them to be able to respectfully speak up when they want to add something else to their plate. 
even if it's a condiment or if they want a different drink or if their fork isn't working or subtle ways that they can advocate for themselves in those situations. So practicing that a little bit more, especially as kids get into middle school and they might start hearing stuff. I just want some of those tools to be practiced. I think you're hitting on something really important. I think that's a really useful way of reframing this. Because I think the reason people were embarrassed to admit they did the backup meal is because it felt like overly catering to their kid and because the food that the backup meal is isn't, quote, good food for family dinner. And what you're saying is when we think about our big picture goal, it's not to have a kid who eats everything that we serve and is a robot child. It's to have a kid who can navigate these strange waters of what am I hungry for? What do I need at this meal? Is that different from the messages I'm getting, both in in like the family dinner is a place to practice that before they're out in the world and the messages they're getting are diet culture messages, having them be really firm, being able to stand their ground of this is how my needs will be met at this meal. That's the whole goal. That's what we're doing. You want me to eat this, but is that what's true for me right now? I've been thinking about this more this past year because it's been very hard for me to feel excited about food, like through COVID and all of the like, mm-hmm. stress. It's just like a very weird thing. I'm hungry physically, but not very much is appealing. And so I am very aware of what it feels like when someone else offers me food that I don't want in a very different way than I think I ever have been before. And I empathize with kids really and truly in my soul. This is a horrible feeling when someone wants you to eat something and you legitimately don't want it. It's that pressure that comes with knowing someone wants you to do something that you just in your body don't want to do. I'm not saying that this is always going to happen at the dinner table, but it's very liberating to look at it from, oh, this is part of raising a competent eater. Right. And a kid who can advocate for themselves and who knows that what feels safe in their body matters more than making other people happy. That's really important. On Instagram recently, I had posted this reel that gave ways to help kids engage with their food to help them feel more in control of their food. And there were a lot of comments from people saying things like, this generation of parents gives their kids too many choices. It's not like previous generations of adults had great relationships with food. Why would we not do something different? (laughs) We're actually trying to unlearn some stuff here. I think you proved the point here. Okay, so back to the backup meal, like nuts and bolts. Do you think it should always be the same option no matter what? Or would you rotate it? One idea I got from a follower was the backup meal is always cereal, but the kids can pick which kind of cereal, which seems like a sort of nice framework if you're a family that stocks multiple kinds of cereal, which we are. For us, it rotates based on what we have in the house. I have three kids and we eat a lot of food, and so we don't always have the same thing. Mm -hmm. Some weeks we might have frozen burritos, and then some weeks we might just have a lot of bread. Mm -hmm. Or we might have muffins that I made, or there might be some other thing. Or the kids might hate the cereal that we have on hand. You could get caught in a really frustrating power struggle if you're like, your safe food is a burrito. And she's like, actually, I don't like burritos anymore. And then it's, well, now what am I doing? Yeah, I keep it fairly loose. Yeah. And you don't want to have this in stock no matter what, especially suddenly like half your grocery budget's going on burritos. What about if you're dealing with multiple kids? Do siblings get the same backup meal option or would you kind of customize it for each kid? So the last time that we had a burrito with the oldest, I actually thought that the younger two were going to ask for one, but they wound up not. 
I don't remember what the dinner was. We did have one meal where nobody was happy, and so they brought cereal to the table, and then all the kids had a bowl of cereal. And some other times, one of them asked for cheese and crackers. They'll just bring it to the table, and then anyone who wants it can Mm -hmm. have it. Mm -hmm. So it is why I'm like, let's just put the cheese and crackers on the table all the time. It just gets very chaotic when you've got multiple kids. And I don't want the whole kitchen on the dining room table. Because that's overwhelming for kids too and also messy and frustrating for you. I think that makes sense. I think having a couple of agreed upon options, this is not hard and fast. There's going to be scenarios where it would make sense to customize. Certainly if you have kids with an age difference that impacts their chewing ability, like a young toddler and a preschooler, you might have to do different backups. Or if, like in my house, you have one kid who will never fall out of love with cheese and another kid who's very prone to changing what her preferred food is. I can't always count on them both agreeing on the same backup. But I agree. If our big picture is less work for us, then (laughs) reducing the chaos makes sense. And then the other piece of it we should talk about more is should kids be in charge of getting it themselves? I know that's what your nine-year-old is doing. I was all for this at first because it really does sound like the best way to reduce the work, especially if you're waiting to make the backup meal call at the table. You don't want to get up again. Yes, the kid has to get up and get the other option. But when I talked about this on Instagram, anti.diet.kids, and I had a really good DM exchange. She works with lots of kids with ARFID and other really traumatic feeding histories. And she said her concern about it is that If you have a kid like that who's regularly needing a backup option, leaving them to fend for themselves could make them feel really isolated and could add to the stress of managing that condition. I think that's a piece that's worth considering. Yeah, I think it's all about what your reaction is in the moment when you're having that conversation with your kid. It would be very easy to take their disinterest in the meal personally and to say something like, well, fine, go get your own food. I'm not going to lie, it's hard to not have emotional reactions when the kids don't want the food that we make. But I think the more you can remember that dinner is a time to be together, everyone may or may not eat the same thing. That's not really the end-all, be-all goal here. There could be a way that your kid could go get their food and then you ask them to tell you a joke or you get the conversation off of the food Or if their backup meal is always the same thing, like if it is always bagels in your house, maybe you put those bagels someplace that your kid can reach near the toaster with the stuff that she would need. There could be a way to facilitate this so that all of the pieces were there for them. We have a snack bin, so after school the kids can get their own snacks. Like it would be sort of the equivalent of that. I think this really comes down to the sort of intention. You don't want the child to feel like they have failed because they're opting for the backup meal option. Just like you shouldn't perceive this as a failure of your own parenting or food prep skills. I think the goal here is to help reduce anxiety, reduce stress, and have a kid find this empowering. And Amy's nine-year-old and my eight-year-old They are kids whom being able to do it themselves around food is really helpful. And, you know, my eight-year-old has a traumatic feeding history, and this has always been our way through, giving her as much control as makes sense to give her. So for her, it's really empowering that she can make her own waffles or she can go get something she wants from the fridge. But for another kid who 
is in a different place with that struggle, it would feel like they aren't getting cared for. Well, especially if they're younger too. Yes, obviously. We're not saying expect your three-year-old to hop up and go peel a banana. But I think there's a good balance to be found there. Another piece of advice from this dietitian is consider making the backup meal into a bedtime snack. So even if your kid doesn't eat a lot of dinner, you don't have to worry about them going to bed hungry because you can give them the cereal or whatever as the bedtime snack. Make that something sort of predictable and something they can rely on and that is minimal prep work, which is similar to how you do bedtime snacks at your house. Yeah, ours is a banana or it's not a banana. (laughs) So that's the (laughs) option that we have just because it's very straightforward. And I don't want to be negotiating with small children at that time of the day. For my two-year-old, if he didn't eat dinner and he ate a banana, that would be enough food for him because Mm -hmm. he, at this time in his life, has a very small appetite at that time of the day. Mm -hmm. I just don't know that that would be enough for some kids. So I think you have to read the room. My four-year-old basically never has a bedtime snack because her bedtime comes really soon after dinner. But my eight-year-old does do a bedtime snack. She's her night owl kid. And she regardless of whether she eats dinner or not, will often make two more waffles because who doesn't love a bedtime waffle? She seems like she's more hungry at that time of day than some other meals. I like that she's feeling good about being able to meet that need for herself. And it's not work for me because she's making it and I'm not getting caught up in negotiations about what you can have. It's very easy to get hung up on the minutia and try to hold yourself fast to some kind of rule. Because I think we as parents are always looking for food rules. That's what diet culture teaches us to do. And then also parenting kids is hard and it's more helpful to do it with a roadmap. You want to make these rules like we don't do a backup meal or if we do a backup meal, it's only this. The truth is the way the math plays out at your house might be really different from any of these rules. And we need to feel empowered as parents that we can make these changes ourselves. Yep. I think it's okay to trust yourself a little bit more, even if what you decide to do is not the conventional wisdom or if what we're saying makes no sense to you. I think that's fine too. (laughs) Yes. If you have gotten this far into the episode and think, well, they are crazy and unreliable, that's fine. (laughs) We're comfortable with that concern. I guess I'll wrap up by talking a little bit about how this has worked at our house. I was sort of blown away by this whole concept when people introduced it to me, was thinking and talking about it a lot all week on Instagram. And on that weekend, Dan was cooking. He cooks on Sundays a lot. And he was doing a roast chicken and some vegetables, which is a meal three out of four of us like. As he was getting started, he said to our eight-year-old, I'm doing chicken and vegetables for dinner. Do you want a bagel? And she said, yes. And then she just happily went off to play and that was it. And I said to him, oh, that reminds me. Were you following my Instagram this week? Like, we need to decide if we're going to do backup meals. And he goes, oh, I hate that idea. (laughs) And I was like, wait, but you just did it. That's a backup meal. And it turned out that he thought I meant short order cooking. Like, we sit down to dinner, they don't like it, and we'll get up and cook you a backup meal at that point. And I was like, no, 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 no. It's this thing that you just did of giving her another option. And he was like, Well, that's what I always do. Why wouldn't we do that? (laughs) It was not something I was doing, but it's how he has been approaching it whenever he does cook family meals, and I hadn't noticed somehow. So we've apparently been doing it all along with great success. So far, so good. All right, so we're going to wrap up with my recommendation segment, which I am now calling Butter for Your Burnt Toast. And this is where we give a recommendation of something we are loving. So Amy, what are you recommending this week? 
I'm recommending one of my own recipes because I'm just going to shamelessly promote myself. Do it. We're here for it. Okay, so I have a relatively new recipe for gingerbread muffins, which I had never made until this year. And I just feel like I've missed them all of my life. There was a lacking in your life you didn't know you had. (laughs) They're straight up holiday spiced goodness. They store incredibly well and they have molasses in them. So they're like crazy moist. And I usually make a double batch and put half in the freezer. I've been putting very pretty gold sugar on top. So they're kind of festive. They're really cute. I appreciated them on your Instagram. I guess it's a unique enough flavor that it feels special. Mm-hmm. Even though it's just a muffin. <laughs> um, I'm excited. It makes, it makes me feel like I've tried harder, even though it's just stirring stuff together in a bowl. And the gold sugar. I might need you to give me a link to the gold sugar you use so I can put that in the show notes for people along with the recipe. It's Wilton. It's from Walmart. It comes in like a circular six pack with other types of colored sugar and things. We've used oh, okay. all gold. So now we just have silver left and it's not as fun. <laughs> Okay, recommending delicious muffins and buying more sprinkles. I'm here for that. My recommendation is a little bit random and nothing to do with food, but it is shoelaces. I am a broken human being, and I do not like to tie shoelaces because it's just time in my day. I don't want to invest in that task. This is how I feel about, you know, teeth brushing and showering too, but I do do those things every day. I was just going to say that I, I don't actually ever untie my shoes. Is that unusual? How do you get them on your feet? I guess they're loose enough that I just slide my feet in. I don't know. Okay, well, I didn't know that was an option. So I spent $12.95 <laughs> on these special shoelaces I'm about to tell you about. Maybe there's something to my foot shape. Don't you <laughs> my foot shape. <laughs> I need these. Okay, so the laces are called Expand Laces. I will put a link in the show notes. They are basically just elastic that comes in colors. <laughs> So, you know, I got white to match my sneakers and they have a little plastic clip thing. So you lace them just like you would lace a normal sneaker. And then there's a little clip thing at the end that holds the lace inside your shoe. So you don't have to tie your laces and then you can just put your shoe on, you know, shove your foot in. I have these really cute sneakers that I got for fall slash winter. They're Veja or Veja, however you say that brand. I just pretend the V stands for Virginia. And I'm so happy because now I'm wearing them a ton. You can cut them to any length, so they would be a great option for kids. Like, I'm really secretly hoping that laced-up shoes for kids are just going to go the way of cursive handwriting because it is a mountain we have not been able to climb in my house. We're still buying Velcro shoes. Fortunately, my children have smallish feet, so I can still find Velcro shoes in their size. But that ship is going to sail at some point, and we're going to have to either learn how to lace their shoes or get these shoelaces. So, Well, also, the amount of energy that I spend telling my oldest child to tie her shoelaces instead of just walking on them, (laughs) that would be nice not to have to do. Yeah, and just getting out of the house in the morning, it's so stressful already. Let's just remove shoelaces from our mental load. You're solving everyone's problems. Yes, you're welcome, everybody. (laughs) All right, Amy, thank you as always for being here. Remind listeners where they can find more of your work. You can find me at yummytoddlerfood.com or at yummytoddlerfood on social. Awesome, thank you. You're welcome. 
Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode and consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.